Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet em, greet em, treat em, and street em. Today's date is July the 12th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. The title of today's podcast is Everybody's Changing the Reference Ranges for Pediatric Vital Signs. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Vicki Curry, who is a pediatric emergency medicine registrar in the West Midlands in the United Kingdom. She is also a member of that awesome Don't Forget the Bubbles team, where she serves as the editor for the monthly research roundup, Bubble Wrap. Dr. Curry, welcome to SGM Peds. Hi, thanks for having me. It's very exciting. Lovely to be here. Well, thank you for joining us, but I understand that you have had a recent career change. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, it's very recent. As of the last few days, I've got a consultant job at the place that I'm currently working, which is Birmingham Children's Hospital. So I'm super excited about that. Actually, yesterday I got signed off with all of my training, which has been years and years of work. And um, yeah, so I've got a job that I start in October, which is extremely exciting. Well, congratulations on reaching this milestone in your career. And I'm sure the staff there at the hospital and the children that you take care of are also very happy to have you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm excited and excited to see what the next chapter brings. All right, Vicki, you have a lot of research background because you are actually quite a nerd yourself, reading multiple articles each month for that bubble wrap. So let's jump into today's episode. What kind of case have you brought for us? So we have a five-year-old boy who presents to the emergency department with his parents because of fever and fatigue. He's had three days of high fevers at home. His parents report that he's also had a decreased appetite and does not seem interested in drinking liquids. He's usually a happy, active boy, but he's been very tired over the past day and the parents are having increasing difficulty waking him up. When his vital signs are taken, he's noted to have a temperature of 40 degrees Celsius and a heart rate of 142 beats per minute, a respiratory rate of 32 breaths a minute and blood pressure of 98 over 60. His capillary refill time is three seconds. His parents look at the monitor and ask you, is that heart rate normal for him? It seems awfully high. We've been reading online about something called sepsis that can be deadly. Does he have sepsis, doctor? Oh my gosh, sepsis, one of those things that definitely makes us nervous. Now, we've looked at pediatric vital signs on the SGEM back in 2014 with another PEDS EM superhero, Dr. Anthony Crocco. And that episode actually re- reviewed the 2011 Fleming et al. systematic review for normal ranges of heart rate and respiratory rate in children from birth to 18 years. That publication provided some useful graphs for clinicians on what is normal, and we'll put those graphs in the show notes. Vital signs can be an important objective measure while assessing a patient. They are often incorporated into many of our early warning systems, risk stratification systems, and treatment protocols. Abnormal vital signs could be an indicator of potential decompensation, specifically heart rate and respiratory rates and are used in early attempts to detect sepsis. Now, children's vital signs are also tricky because they can differ based on age. 
And there's variation regarding what the normal ranges of vital signs can be for pediatric patients. And vital sign ranges from common guidelines such as the Pediatric Advanced Life Support or PALS or Advanced Pediatric Life Support can differ. So Vicki, what's the clinical question that we're trying to ask today? So our clinical question is, how does a derived distribution of heart rate and respiratory rates for children compare to APLS and other national guidance? And our referenced paper that we're looking at is Brennan et al., Time to Change the Reference Ranges of Children's Physiological Observations in Emergency Care, a prospective study that was published in the Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health in March of this year. All right, let's move on to our PICO questions. What was the population included? So our population in this study was children from 0 to 16 years recruited consecutively from October 2017 to September 2020 from three emergency departments and one urgent care centre in England. Now, these institutions serve populations with significant health inequalities and life expectancy. And who was excluded? So the team excluded none. So they didn't exclude anyone, although impossible values were excluded. And the impossible values were listed as heart rate below 50, a respiratory rate below 9 or above 90. And interestingly, this did equate to a significant number of records. So for the heart rate category, there was over 11,000. And for the respiratory category, there was over 10,000 records that were excluded. Hmm, makes you wonder a little bit. And what was the intervention? So the intervention was anonymized data for patients' heart rates and respiratory rates. And their comparison? So they compared um, the reference standards in advanced pediatric life support. And let's jump into the outcomes here. Now, the authors actually did not specify outcomes. They used something called aims instead, and they had three aims. What were those? So the three aims of the authors were, first of all, to compare the distribution of heart rate and respiratory rates from the study to the APLS ranges. The second was the proportion of patients from this study that would meet the severe cutoff threshold This was compared to the guidelines from the UK Sepsis Trust and the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, as we refer to it here in the UK. And thirdly, they compared the distribution of heart rate and respiratory rates from the study to the previously published large data sets that we mentioned earlier. Can you give us the author's conclusions? The author's conclusions for this study were that the study's data set suggested that normal heart rate ranges proposed by APLS and others is too low, and therefore abnormal measurement encompasses too large a proportion. The respiratory rate of this data set was more consistent with the guidelines and other published data sets. Moving on to our quality checklist. First question Did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, it did. Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? Yep, I think they did. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? Mm, Unsure. Probably yes. They did use anonymized data from multiple emergency departments that was prospectively collected over all the years in order to minimize bias. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. And what about the outcome? Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. 
Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? Now, I don't think that they have. They didn't take into account the presenting complaint. And interestingly, they did not exclude fever. And we know that having a fever is a source of tachycardia, which we'll come on to later. They also didn't kind of take into account anxiety or overall discharge destination. So unfortunately, no, I don't think that all of the important confounding factors have been identified. Okay, I can't wait to jump into that discussion with you a little bit later in the show. Let's finish up our checklist with the next question. Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Not sure about this one either. Um, We don't know what the ultimate discharge destination for the patients was. How precise do you think these results are? Again, I think unsure based on what we've already mentioned. Do you believe the results? Yes, I do. Do you think the results can be applied to the local population? I think the team have tried really hard. They've used a mixture of settings which is reflective of the UK population. So I think probably. Do the results of the study fit with other available evidence? Yes, they do. And our last question is about the funding of the study. Were there any conflicts of interest? No, there was no no conflicts of interest reported. Okay, let's talk about their results now. Their initial data set included a whopping 235,909 records. Now, after they excluded entries with missing or impossible values, that went down to slightly over 191,000 records for heart rate and respiratory rate that were included in the final analysis. The median age was 5, with 45% of the participants being female. Vicky, what was the key result? So the key result was that the distribution of heart rate in the study population was higher than the range in APLS, potentially leading to overclassification of children at severe risk of sepsis based on the current guidelines. Okay, let's break it down now by their aims. So aim number one was a comparison of vital signs distribution to APLS. What did they find? So for the under one-year-old age group, the 95th percentile heart rate was very similar compared with APLS values. Interestingly, the heart rate was higher for all of the other age groups, ranging from 10 beats per minute in the 12 to 13-year-old group to a maximum of 31 beats per minute higher in the 4 to 5-year-old group. The 5th percentile was higher at almost every age compared to the APLS range. This is most pronounced at birth and one year where the study data demonstrated heart rates that were 28.5 and 26 beats per minute higher respectively. And the study's 95 percentile for respiratory rate was similar to APLS at birth, but higher at other age ranges. The 5th percentile for respiratory rate was similar to APLS. Aim number two was looking at the proportion of those who would meet that severe threshold per the UK Sepsis Trust and NICE guidelines. Across all age groups, 17.5% would have met the high-risk criteria based on NICE. There was also a difference by age here. For children less than one year, 23.3% were considered high-risk based on heart rate by NICE guidelines. This percentage decreased as age increased, where only 2.2% crossed that threshold in the older than 12 age groups. 
Now, based on the respiratory rate, only 7% would be considered high risk. And there was an exception here in the age 6 to 11 group where up to 14% would have been considered high risk. Pretty wide variation there. Aim number three was comparing the vital sign distributions to previous large data sets, and that was from O'Leary, Bonafide, and Fleming. And just as a reminder, O'Leary included patients in the emergency department, Bonafide included hospitalized children, and Fleming was that study we mentioned earlier that was a meta-analysis of 69 studies. The mean difference for heart rate differed compared to O'Leary's emergency department children and Bonafide's hospitalized children. This was 7.9, with a standard deviation of 7.9 and 6.5, respectively. The difference compared to Fleming's data was larger at 15.2, with a standard deviation of 10.6. And the respiratory rate in comparison to the three previous studies differed by 3.5 to 3.7, with the standard deviations ranging from 2.1 to 4.2. Now, overall, the vital signs from this study tended to be higher. All right, Dr. Curry, are you ready for my favorite section? Are you ready to talk nerdy? Always. All right, nerdy point number one, here we go, is about the recorded vital signs. Now, does it matter that the vital signs were recorded at the initial assessment of the patient? And how were these vital signs recorded? So I think this is a really interesting point. So the heart rate and respiratory rate were recorded only at the initial assessment. And we know that lots of children will often come to ED with fever, like our case, that then settles and as well as the fever settling, the numbers do as well. We're also not sure if this value is being taken at the initial assessment might have impacted the study. We all know that when children and families present to the emergency department, they might be particularly stressed or anxious to find out what's going on with them, and that might have potentially skewed the data. And additionally, it's not stated how the vital signs were recorded. Was this done manually by counting heart rate and respiratory rate over one minute or by monitor? Previous studies have shown that there is some variability between clinical staff recording these numbers, and that could also subsequently introduce another bias. Nerdy point number two is about the derivation population. So previous studies looking at normal ranges for pediatric vital signs have been performed in different settings, including patients in the ED and hospitalized patients. But is there really an ideal setting for obtaining this data? And is ED really the right place to draw this data from? Yeah, and Vicky, you mentioned previously that children who are in the emergency department have many reasons why their heart rate might be elevated compared to even their own baseline. They can be scared. They can be anxious. They can be having pain. They could be dehydrated. They can also have fever. And that's interesting, again, a group that the authors chose not to exclude from this study. So all of these factors may contribute to the overall increased heart rate they found. Nerdy point number three is about treating the patient, not the numbers. Now, we mentioned in nerdy point number one that there are many reasons for why a child's heart rate or respiratory rate may differ from these normal ranges. And it's important to always interpret these vital signs in the context of the patient in front of you. Now, a child with bradycardia maybe a well-conditioned athlete, or they can have an underlying eating disorder. 
A child with acute asthma exacerbation might be tachycardic because they just got some albuterol or salmeterol. And that same child with asthma who initially presented with tachypnea and a high respiratory rate, which has slowly returned to normal range, maybe because he is feeling more comfortable and breathing easier, or he's starting to tire out. Very different situations. So examine the patient and don't simply rely on the monitors. And finally, if the patient had been seen in the emergency department or treated within the health system before, I've often found it useful to compare their vital signs in the emergency department to previously recorded vital signs. So use their patient as kind of their own baseline control. Nerdy point number four, what in the world happened to the patients? Good question. Because what we don't know is if any of these patients that fell into the severe category actually had sepsis or even what any of the diagnoses or discharge destination was for any of these patients. It would have been perhaps useful to see the percentage of children at the extremes of our distribution curve that were admitted versus discharged. In view of this, we can't comment on the sensitivity or specificity of the values in this study for detection of sepsis, as we have no idea which patients actually were treated or even diagnosed. Now, there was a previous study that looked at return visits, admissions, and adverse outcomes for children discharged with abnormal vital signs, and they actually found that very few returned and required admission. Our last point is about the generalizability of this study. Now, the data set derived here was from three emergency departments and one urgent care center. I appreciate that the authors acknowledge that most children are not seen at academic centers or children's hospitals, so they purposefully chose community sites for their study. I also want to applaud them for choosing sites that serve populations with significant inequalities in health and life expectancy. These factors do help with the generalizability of this study. However, this is still just four sites out of the entire UK, and it's unclear how much we can rely on these derived vital signs ranges to be as accurate when applied broadly. But I do think that their method of extracting this data can be applied much more widely to generate potentially a larger data set. All right, Vicky, can you comment on the author's conclusion compared to the SGM conclusion? So we do agree with the author's conclusions, but we wonder whether the findings may not be generalizable to all settings. And can you give us the SGM bottom line? The acceptable normal range of distribution for paediatric vital signs may vary based on practice location. Ultimately, treat the child, not the number. Yes, yes, yes. I just want to emphasize this one more time. Please treat the patient and not the monitor number, the lab number. We care about the patient-oriented outcomes. All right, Vicky, can you resolve that case for us that you presented initially? Sure. So, you are concerned that your patient may be exhibiting signs of septic shock based on his fever, tachycardia, delayed capillary refill and mental status. You decide to quickly obtain IV access for blood work, including a blood culture, and administer IV fluids, antibiotics and an antipyretic. He's admitted to the hospital for observation. All right, Vicky, we've talked a lot of different points about this study, but how are you going to apply the study clinically? So I think the normal range of vital signs may differ based on the patient and the practice setting. And using standard guidelines from 
PALS or APLS may be appropriate, but they should always be interpreted within the context of the clinical presentation. As we said before, I'll say it again, treat the child, not the number. Awesome. Now, I do want to talk about something that happened in the course of us developing the show notes. The case we discussed had a initially a different conclusion that was changed based on our offline discussion. And so initially, I had written a different ending where our patient in the emergency department defervesces, appears more alert, drinks some fluids, heart rate goes down, everybody feels more reassured, and then he's discharged home with close follow-up with his pediatrician. But you told me that's not something you typically do in the UK. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I guess the bit that is a bit different to what we would do in the UK is we absolutely would monitor them. And according to the NICE guidance, you have about an hour to assess a child that's reaching that high risk category that the study has talked about and make an assessment by a senior clinician as to whether you think this child truly needs to go down that sepsis pathway i.e. be treated with antibiotics, with fluids, based on not just the vital signs, but how the child is themselves. It would be unusual for us to treat a child with IVs and then discharge them from the emergency department. And I guess that's the different thing in kind of what we talked about. You might observe them, you might see that their fever settles with an antipyretic, And you might then, once all of the numbers in the child had improved, you may then send them home. But it'd be quite unusual for us to give a dose of antibiotics and discharge them from the emergency department. Usually the children that we deemed that were unwell enough to need that in the first place would spend the night in hospital, at least. Thank you for that. And I think this just demonstrates some of the practice variation that we see across the world. And this also gets into the notion of how tricky sepsis is sometimes to detect accurately in children. Yeah. I mean, I think you can comment on this as well, but I feel like most of the children that initially present febrile looking really bad, you know, it's hard to tell whether or not these kids are truly septic or is it just simply a viremia. But obviously, we don't want to make the mistake of, under-treating and not catching sepsis due to its mortality and morbidity. Absolutely. And I think that's something that comes with experience. And I guess that's reflected in the NICE guideline that we use predominantly in the UK, which kind of highlights the need for, in those children that reach that high-risk criteria, getting a senior review very quickly is kind of built into to part of that guideline to hopefully help with that decision-making process. But yeah, it's, a, it's absolutely a very tricky diagnosis and not one that you want to miss. Now, I will tease just real quick for our audience that Dr. Damien Rowland, one of the authors on this study, will be coming back to the SGEM to talk about one of his recent publications about getting rid of sepsis screening. I think that's a bold move, but stay tuned. Okay, Dr. Curry, what are you going to tell this patient and family? I'm so glad that you brought your child to the emergency department today because I'm also concerned for possible sepsis based not only on his elevated heart rate, but because he's acting very tired and his capillary refill is delayed. And this might be due to a variety of factors. Sometimes children look really ill when they have a high fever, and they look much better when the fever resolves. His heart rate could be high from the fever or from dehydration because he's not drinking enough, 
And sometimes viral infections can present like this as well. However, we are trained to think about the worst possible scenario in the emergency department. So I think it's for the best that we obtain some bloods, give him some IV fluids and antibiotics and have him stay in the hospital for a period of observation. All right, Dr. Curry. It was fantastic having you on SGEMPEDS. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It's been really, um, yeah, really interesting and really a good way to think about and talk about a paper. And before we go, can you give us the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.